Chapter 2. The Serpent Kings. Regardless of the exact date of the Exodus, there is a fascinating time period in Egyptian history that also occurs between the last page of Genesis and the first page of Exodus, the Hyksos invasion. Biblically, there is no mention of the Hyksos regime, but then again, there is little information given about the time period of the 430 years. Let's look at what the Bible does give us. At the end of Genesis, Joseph belongs to the court of an anonymous pharaoh. The beginning of Exodus tries to bridge the two stories, Exodus 1-1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So in the year 1 of 430, we have around 70 Hebrews, give or take servants, etc., migrating to Egypt during the seven bad years of famine. Verse 7 is terribly vague. How many years did they wax exceedingly mighty before things changed? By the time we get to year 429, we will have around 600,000 men. So a population of probably around 2 million scattered all along the Nile. There is little mystery in the previous section other than why the English translator needed three verses to spit out 12 names. Oofta. That is uh, quite a population boom that seems to be supported by Exodus 1. Yet, when did the boom take place? And when did the Egyptians go from knowing Joseph to not knowing Joseph? Exodus 1.8 brings up a major issue for me. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. If you follow Egyptian history, they get new kings, otherwise known as pharaohs, every decade or so, if not sooner. Sometimes you can get multiple pharaohs in a single year. Regime change is not uncommon but the details surrounding this single verse can mean quite a bit. Was it the very next king? Did a hundred years pass? Two hundred? Three hundred? See, it just doesn't say. This vague 430-year period, regardless of your choice of pharaoh, something very dramatic did happen in Egypt, and thus... To the Hebrews. The Hyksos invaded. Unlike the Egyptian era in Egypt, the hieroglyphic records actually deem the Hyksos rulers worthy of mention. Interesting. Today, the Hyksos people are a bit mysterious. Experts say they have diverse origins and possibly came from Western Asia. Pretty vague. Just like the Egyptians, modern historians don't have a lot of details about who they were or where they came from. But we do know what they were like during their stay. First, 
they invaded Delta, or Goshen, depending on how you see it, and ruled at a city named Avarice. This means that they invaded the heart of old Egypt and took out the previous dynasty. Northern, or Lower Egypt, is where all the pyramids and wealth used to be found. It also means that the Hebrews were also enslaved along with the Egyptian residents. Second, the Hyksos people were technologically advanced. On the old Anno Mundi timeline, it has been around a thousand years since the Ark, giving humanity plenty of time to evolve and change. Remember how Genesis 10 describes the family trees spreading out to be fruitful? Well, the Hyksos people finally came home. When they did, they came with better techniques and weapons than the Egyptians. They were known for their horse culture, which is how they probably won their war against Egypt. Instead of a regular army, they were a cavalry. In fact, they loved their horses so much that upon death, they were buried with them. The horse and chariot revolutionized war in the region. But when they invaded in 1674, those were Oxford dates, they were in a league of their own. Upon their horse and chariot, they also had powerful composite bows and battle axes that helped them sweep down from wherever. Strangely, besides their military advantage, they were also known for their unique musical instruments. Heavy metal was invented. The Hyksos people arrived in Egypt worshipping storm gods such as Hadad. Now, this is curious because the Canaanite people, cue the Imperial March theme, also worshipped Hadad. Was this just proximity and regional influence? Or was there a connection between these two bad guy cultures? Later, the Hyksos were connected with far darker deities than storm gods, with their worship of an Egyptian god, Seth. While it could be seen as appropriation, it should be noted that Set or Seth was the god of death and chaos. This says a lot to me. Along with their origins, historians and linguists have debated the meaning of the name Hyksos. Manetho, an earlier historian, believed their name translated as King Shepherd. It is one of our oldest guesses. Not sure if it makes it right, though. Josephus, who came onto the scene centuries later, also agreed with Manetho about it meaning shepherd kings. Appian tells a much different tale, involving a seraph and a collection of 80,000 lepers. Some have speculated that Appian came across a veiled reference to the Hebrews in Exodus, but I'm a little terrified to think of a leper horde. Makes me think of a zombie army. In recent years, historians have developed new theories about the name. Today, they believe the name should mean rulers from foreign lands. Okay, not as exciting as a zombie horde, but it makes sense. Some modern theorists view the migration as only coming from Palestine, while others connect it to an Indo-Aryan expansion. Indo-Aryan? 
before we explore the ramifications of this theory, let's go back to Genesis to remember the catalyst for all of this turmoil. It's 41 verse 53. And the seven years of plenteousness that was in the land of Egypt were ended, and the seven years of dearth began to come. According to Joseph, who had said, And the dearth was in all lands, but in all the lands of Egypt there was bread. And when all the lands of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto the Egyptians, Go unto Joseph, what he hath said to you, do. And the famine was over the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians. And the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because that the famine was so sore in all lands. The scale of the situation is a bit stunning. Now remember, Egypt is the most fertile country on the planet. The Nile has tributaries that reach thousands of miles into the heart of Africa. If it rains in Africa, the Egyptians will get that water eventually. Yet Joseph is warned that Egypt will see seven years of famine. Did the Nile dry up? Did the climate shift? Was there a volcanic explosion? For the Nile to not produce for seven years is a bit stunning. Not only was Egypt famished, but so too were other countries. The issue was global. See? It was a very big issue. Something happened to the earth that caused all humans and animals to suffer for seven years. Luckily, Joseph packed away enough grain to not only feed Egypt, but to also turn Egypt into the world's food bank, feeding Hebrews and others during this time. Lining up the Anno Mundi of Genesis and the Oxford BC dates, I have the Hebrews arriving in Egypt around the year 1734 BC, which would give them 17 years before Jacob died, and another 60 years before the Hyksos invade. If the famine was global, Indo-Aryan migration makes sense. The definition of Indo-Aryan is a bit nebulous. Indo refers to India, and Aryan, well, that depends on if you're German or not. Current historians and crazy historians differ. For the sake of being epic, let's allow a Germanic interpretation for just a minute. Remember how Hitler sent his genetic researchers to the Himalayas to try to discover the lost genetic code of the Aryan race? Why did he do this? Well, he believed the Aryans were vastly superior. Even though his guys didn't find supreme beings, they did return with swastikas as a symbol for their Aryan quest. Again, some modern historians interpret the Hyksos invasion as a bunch of bully shepherds coming from Palestine. Dull. And Indo-Aryan migration is pretty epic, 
especially if you have a global catastrophe happening. Think of those post-apocalyptic dystopian zombie movies. When the going gets bad, mankind gets nasty. 60 years after the famine affected the world, the Hyksos people have turned into a horse lord civilization capable of riding into your country and pillaging everything you had. Perhaps they did start out in India, but when crops began growing again, these raiders did not turn the horse into a family uh, farm animal again, did they? They kept raiding. If news of a paradise reached them, they now have a good reason to migrate. Considering all of the civilizations between India and Egypt, 60 years would be a reasonable amount of time. There is also the good-evil symbolism to consider. The Hebrews and Israel are blessed by God, not only with food and protection, but also with the promise of the Christ. The Aryans are Hitler's ideal kind of folks. Regardless of where they came from, what do we see from the Hyksos people? Militaristic death worshippers. Beside the need to find a paradise, they might have been sent to crush the good guys. Epic, huh? These guys also would have been the ultimate deal breaker. When the first Hyksos king arrived in Egypt, Joseph and the unnamed Pharaoh might have still been alive. I'd assume the Hyksos king would have killed the old ruler and heirs, subjugated the previous administrators, and enslaved the people of Goshen, regardless of race. Whatever loyalty the old dynasty felt toward Joseph, God, and the Hebrews, was shattered as the Hyksos army swept into southern or upper Egypt. The old word for Hyksos, Kekshakashut, also means foreign overlords. And that is certainly what life would have been like for the Hebrews. These guys didn't owe anybody anything. Now, it does baffle me that a nation of horse lords would decide to settle down. But that is what happened. On the Turin list, it records four kings ruling from the BC dates of 1674 to 1567. The names of the kings were Sakir Har, which translates as Shushi. The second king was named Hayan, which translates also to Upper Anath. The third king was an easier to pronounce name, Apophis, which translates to Samukinu. And the fourth king was Kamudi, which translates very difficultly to Sekherne. These aren't just goofy names. These are sinister names. Let me explain. Let's take king number three. Egyptian mythology changes from region to region and era to era. Although there is some semblance to the family tree found in Greek mythology, there are far, far more gods in the pantheon. One of the chief gods is Ra, 
the sun god. This is pretty obvious because sun in a desert country is a killer. So Ra was a pretty universal deity, but he had a counterpart, Apophis. Apophis was the serpent of destruction who battled each evening with Ra. When the sun went down, it was Apophis swallowing Ra to create a world filled with darkness. Yep, king number three named himself after the symbol for darkness. It's like a conquering king renaming himself a Satan-y, Lucifer man, a devil dude. There is certainly a level of mocking and grandstanding in the choice. Willfully evil. Another interesting name can be found in king number two. This one is a bit anachronistic. Ugaritic mythology is named after an archaeological dig at Ugarit, where scholars found stories from Canaanite mythology. Anath is a violent, evil, murderous wife-sister of Baal, the storm god found throughout the Old Testament. When king number two named himself with an Anath reference, that means he either brought an older system, Anath equals Kali equals Aryan, or he began a system which would grow into the Canaanite belief system, or both. Later, I'll talk more about Anath, but trust me when I say it is a foul name. Curiously, Ramses II will turn to Anath worship also, and will even name a daughter after this foreign deity. So the Hyksos regime ruled for a century under four different kings. After sweeping across the world, defeating the good guys, and taking up residence, the Hyksos regime lost their place in a rather silly turn of events. The Hippo Decree. So king number four, Kamudi, really valued his sleep. He must have, for the sound of hippos belching each morning down by the river sent him into a rampage. As supreme commander, he decided that the hippo needed to die. So he sent his diplomat, Secondary, to begin wiping out the hippo population. Little did he know, the hippo is a sacred animal to the Egyptians and involved in several old myths of creation. Plus, hippos are pretty cool and distinctly Egyptian. So when the uh, diplomat rolls into southern Egypt with this announcement, they kill him rather than submit. The dynasties of the Joseph era were in the north. The rebellion starts in the south, near Thebes, with an Egyptian by the name of Kamos. Because of his defiance, a three-year war begins, in the, where the Egyptians take back southern Egypt. Did they get help from the nearby Nubians? Did they get help from Hebrews who had fled south to avoid the invaders? After three years, Egypt is again separated into a north-south or or upper and lower or red-white division. Amos I becomes 
the first Egyptian king, ruler, pharaoh, in a century and kicks off the 18th dynasty. Since all Egyptians dream of replicating the scorpion king's actions of uniting the lands, Amos pushed the battle to the Hyksos. He invaded the north, displacing the Hyksos, and after another three years of fighting, wipes them out after trapping them in the Sinai wilderness. Even though the Hyksos nation vanished from history after losing this battle, it is doubtful that all the Hyksos people died. The women and children would have fled in advance. And based on where this story took them, I'd bet they went into Israel or Palestine. There are a few scholars that believe the story of the Exodus is just the story of the Hyksos expulsion. From the shepherd kings to the migration route, it did give me pause. But there are numerous alignment and theological issues that do not seem to fit this theory. In the Oxford Ramses timeline, it will still be another 200 years before the Hebrews leave Egypt, allowing the Hyksos people time to repopulate and become another nation. Here is a quick Oxford Ramses timeline. In the year 1734 BC, Jacob and the Israelites arrive in Egypt. In the year 1717 BC, Jacob dies during Dynasty 14. In the year 1674 BC, the Hyksos invade Egypt and claim the Delta. In the year 1663 BC, Joseph dies. Quite a ways after that, in the year 1567 BC, the Theban princes, led by Kamos and Amos, drive out the Hyksos with a coalition of Nubians or Hebrews or all the above or none of the above. And also in the year 1567 BC, the Hyksos survivors settle in vacant Palestine. And far later in the year 1304 BC, the Hebrews leave Egypt. Now, there is still quite a bit of time after the Hyksos leave, isn't there? 263 years can change a lot. Now, let's go back to Exodus and take a look at how those years were described. Verse 8. Now, there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that, when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so, get them up out of the land. First, the description of a new king would have fit anywhere in the 430-year timeline. But during that time, there were two massive regime changes. The first was when the 14th dynasty northerners, Joseph's guys, lost Egypt to the Hyksos. The second was when the Hyksos rulers lost to the 18th dynasty southerners from Thebes. 
let's put on Theban colored glasses to look at this verse. The new king is Amos I, who did not know Joseph, right? He just united Egypt, defeated the Hyksos, but has a real problem. Hebrews outnumber Egyptians. Now, I believe the Hebrews most likely helped in the rebellion and have proven to be worthy allies. Yet the threat remains. Solution? A wise plan. The plan must be shrewd because if they bungle it, the Hebrews could easily rise up and overwhelm them by sheer numbers. Amos does not want to purge them from Egypt because of enemies. Could this be the threat of the Hyksos remnant? A new Hittite nation? A threat from Nubia? Don't know. But the threat remains, which is why he chooses to keep the Hebrews around so they don't turn on him. His plan is to keep them and subjugate them, which is why it needed to be a wise plan. It was also a patient plan. If this is said right after the war with Hyksos, it would take generations before the Hebrews transitioned from military heroes to working slaves. During my Horemheb research, I read how tax burdens were used to create le- to legally create slaves. Remember, Jacob and his 70 came into Egypt as almost royal guests. After the Hyksos Wars, the Hebrews were still a threat. By the time we get to Moses' birth, they all were slaves. So what happened? My theory is that the wise plan hatched by Amos I was to begin taxing the Hebrews. Generation A received a small tax. Generation B received a higher tax. Generation C, quite used to taxes in life in Egypt, received a huge burden. They probably faced the choice of either paying their taxes or leaving the country. This is after hundreds of years of living in Egypt. None of them knew Israel, and if they did, heard rumors of who now lived there. Fight or pay taxes. I'd bet they found a way to pay taxes. The Horemheb theory is that the tax burden was put on the children. Seems outrageous? Look at our current national debt. No way! Look at our social security program. It is easy to pass the buck to the next generation. So Generation D would have been born slaves to all the folks who could not afford to pay the bill. It was a wise plan. Verse 11 reads, Therefore did they set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. 
and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they made them serve, was with rigor. So, verse 111 covers two centuries of this policy afflicting them. There are a few other things in this passage I'd like to point out. The reference to Pithom and Ramses is strangely anachronistic. Now, according to the Hatshepsut theory, which is 1446 BC, Moses would have written this verse a century before the two cities existed. Ramses, R-A-A-M-S-E-S, is not misspelled, but it is a name variation of the guy who commissioned the building, Ramses the Great, who did not take the throne until 1304 BC. Now, you could argue about name meanings and make this bit of anachronism vanish. But the other fun detail is that the Hebrews made bricks. Most of ancient Egypt was made with carved stone. But during the 18th dynasty, especially the Valley of the Kings era, bricks were very popular. I believe that this supports the Oxford Ramses timeline more than the other way around. I hope you've enjoyed episode two of Examining Moses by Jason Lee Willis. Check out my website or Facebook page, Jason Lee Willis Novels, for ordering the book or for more audio podcasts. The music you've been listening to today was At the Feet of the Sphinx and A Dream Within a Dream by Twin Musicom. Until next time.